A song is probably familiar to many of you. That song is called Small Town by the Cougar, John Mellencamp, absolutely. Fun fact for you, he grew up in a small town in the great state of Indiana, right, D? Where's he at? Is he in this room? Yeah. <laughs> in fact, that town is called Seymour, Indiana, and as of 2020, it is home to about 21,000 people. Isn't that interesting? That's a small town. Uh, come on, John, you think you know a small town? Seymour has a Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> Seymour has a Walmart. Uh, I, I'm not guessing here. I've been to Seymour multiple times. My best friend, his name is Matthew. We, uh, uh, we were roommates for four years in school, and uh, when we were in college together, uh, sorry, he, he went off to preach in Seymour, or be a youth pastor preaching in Seymour uh, with he, uh, he and his wife uh, around the same time that I was starting to interview here. Um, when we were both coming to Ozark Christian College together, uh, separately, but when we came to meet together in college, uh, I was coming from Clarksville, Tennessee, a city of about 150,000 people, and then he was coming from Portland, Oregon, uh, of course, metropolitan, uh, massive city, and so Joplin, something like 50,000 people, and we both felt that uh, we were coming to a pretty small town. And then uh, after Matt travels to Seymour to finish his first interview, uh, I'm asking him on the phone, we're talking, hey, how'd your interview go? And he's good. Uh, he, he says, good. Uh, you know, Joplin is, I, I thought Joplin was a small town, but Seymour's only like 20,000 people. And at the same time, I'm in the process of interviewing here, and I'm looking outside, and I see that green sign as I drive into town, 7,000 people in Greenville, Illinois. <laughs> I said, You've got, uh, we've got you beat three to one. Actually, or you've got us be three to one, rather, because I drove into Greenville not realizing that towns of 7,000 people even existed. And in fact, just about 10 miles down the road, there's a little town called uh, Mulberry Grove. But as far as I'm concerned, that place should be called the Kirchy Cul-de-Sac. Uh, <laughs> and they have, their own, they have their own Dollar General, and they, and they have their own Casey's, and a fire station, and a high school. But uh, the only people I know that live there at the moment are the Kirchies. Not now, but at the time. Um... And then in between a Mulberry Grove in Greenville, there's a little town, little village called uh, <laughs> Smithboro, with about 177 people, according to the 2020 census. Uh, so, you know, honestly, I think Mellencamp is being a little bit dramatic about his small town. You know, I think any, to anyone concerned here, he's a little bit of a fraud. <laughs> I'm being dramatic. I don't know that I had exactly that conversation with my roommate, but... I tell you this story uh, because we're beginning a new series this month on the Psalms called Summer Hits. And with each member of the preaching staff, they'll be bringing uh, a summer hit song of their choosing. Um, and I'll be totally honest, Mellencamp is not my usual jam. I don't go out of my way to, to listen to John Mellencamp. My dad certainly likes him a lot. Uh, I was made aware of his legacy, but I've never gone out of my way uh, to enjoy his work personally. Small Town came out in 1985, about 12 years before I was born, uh, on the album Scarecrow. You can see the image there. Um, but I felt it was fitting for us today. It's the kind of song that I would have imagined that was played over at the Fourth Fest yesterday. I didn't hear it. Did anybody hear? Does anyone play Mellencamp? No? Okay. Well, it's the kind of thing I would, that gives me that Fourth of July feel, you know? It's a bit difficult to find in today's music, and so I thought it was that Great America Farm Town sense. As the song expresses, there's something simple, calming, and reflective about small towns, and I especially enjoy that in the summertime. But I also selected that song to fit in with where we are in God's Word this morning. As I said, we're beginning a study in the book of Psalms, and maybe uh, you're reading alongside us in our daily reading schedule, right? We're doing five Psalms a day, 30 days. You should get through all 150 Psalms. Uh, a quick tip for you, uh, one, Psalm 119 is large. It's about seven pages in my Bible, so if you wanted to, like, dedicate one whole day, you could do uh, July 31st. is Psalm 119 day. You can do that, and I think it's a really great way to focus in on that text. Um, but we'll be focusing heavily on the beginning of the book today. 
Uh, Psalm 1 specifically, I, I ultimately want to state a case for what the Psalms are by looking at Psalms 1 and also kind of creating a window. We'll be looking at quite a few texts today, not just Psalm 1, but I, I, I want us to have uh, an understanding of what the Psalms are, and we're going to have a, a narrow window. I'm going to limit it to Psalm 1 through 35, your first week of reading in, in, our, uh, in our reading plan. I want to keep it tight. I don't want to bounce around the entire book, but I also want you to see everything that we're talking about today as you read the Psalms over the course of just one week. So here's some basic facts to start uh, in your understanding of the Psalms. The Psalms are unique to basically every other book in the Bible. Uh, They are a composition of 150 different songs and poems, some often played to music. Uh, They are written by various authors during uh, various kings and different reigns in the lifespan of Israel. The timeline isn't exact, uh, but the difference, like the gap between the oldest psalm and the youngest psalm is about 500 to 600 years. The Psalms, as a composition, are written across uh, various historical moments in Israel's time. We have uh, Israel's history through David's reign, uh, the dividing of the northern and southern kingdoms. We even have Psalms that are written as far uh, along as the Babylonian exile and the return from captivity. So unlike every other biblical text, uh, which were all originally written and designed by their authors to be linearly compiled into a tight, cohesive narrative or prophetic document, the Psalms are actually 150 uh, separate documents written by multiple authors, but structured and compiled into one intentional and cohesive work. And I do think that the structure of it is very intentional, why Psalms are ordered the way they are. And there's probably no, more directly, no, no name more directly associated with the Psalms than, of course, uh, King David. Now, there are many psalmists, such as Solomon, the son of David, uh, Asaph, the sons of Korah, even one of the psalms is ascribed to Moses. But utilizing direct attributions which we find in the text, as well as later citations in the New Testament to David, we can conclude that David wrote at least 75 psalms. And if I'm doing my quick math, uh, that's half the psalms right there belong to David. And of the first 35 psalms in your first week of reading, David receives credited authorship for 31 of them. David a young, humble musician and songwriter, born in a small town, who loves his people dearly and closely, but with opportunity, he leaves and receives a throne, reigning in the big city of Jerusalem, but not forgetting exactly who he is or where he came from. And this is where my Mellencamp analogy breaks down, so we're just going to move past that. (laughs) Mellencamp, you know, he did a bunch of concerts around the world, but David, he was anointed by God himself to receive the throne of Israel to lead Israel's people in faith, humility, and wisdom. We know that David wasn't always good at this, and Ben Harris will give a message on this next week, but but we know that when all was said and done, David died humble, a man redeemed after God's own heart. 1 Kings uh, tells us that as David is prepping for his death, it says, uh, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it's written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel." David died righteously. He desired that his sons would abide in delight in the law of the Lord, just as he did. And this echoes the words of the very first psalm. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. This is how the whole book begins. 
When we consider David's heart and his constant presence in the compilation, I don't think there's a way you can remove the heart of David from the spirit of the compilation. Even in the Psalms that have different authors, the cry of David on his deathbed seems to be constantly looming over the entirety of the text. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. There is a reason this is the first psalm. While the whole compilation was pieced together over centuries, the foundation of the psalms is the same, delight in the law of God. Now consider that in the author's mind, uh, in David's mind, in any of the uh, Jewish author's minds, the, first five, the, the Torah is what they have. It's the first five books of the Bible. This is the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. For David and for all of Israel, this is God's word to them, his revelation to Israel. I'm going to be using that term pretty often for us to understand how that applies to us in the New Covenant. Uh, We abide in a law fulfilled in Christ, the New Covenant. We understand the Bible as we have it now as a product of God's progressive revelation. And what I mean by this is that God did not info dump uh, all of his story of redemption at once onto the shoulders of a few men, but God has actually revealed himself more and more over time. Progressively, in the shifting of cultures and world powers, in God's wisdom, he has determined and decided to reveal himself more and more throughout history. And of course, we see God's revelation most profoundly revealed and fulfilled in Christ Jesus, crucified, resurrected, glorified in heaven, and of course, returning again. Matthew 5.17, Jesus reveals himself as the fulfillment of the law, and he is that final word. Any revelation beyond, God, beyond Christ or attempting to supersede Christ is a false one. Paul makes this abundantly clear in Galatians 1, 8 through 9. He's, he's talking to the Galatians. They have, uh, they're wrestling with false gospels. And he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preached to you originally, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one that you originally accepted, let them be under God's curse. But David and his people, in their time, they have but a piece of that fullness of God's revelation. They have the Torah, the law. These five treasured and spirit-inspired works of Moses, given to Israel as a guide and as a grace from God. And I use that term, guide and gra- those terms guidance and grace very specifically because keep in mind, the nations surrounding Israel and the wandering of the wilderness, they have built for themselves idols that they simply don't know how to please. They don't know how to satisfy these false gods. Their rituals are just grasping at straws. There's a drought, and they wonder, how do we make the rain god happy? And so then they say, I'll wrangle up some virgins. And then some guy says, I'm going to start a fire. And that's how they try to solve their problems. That's all they have to go off of. And it's in that unstructured kind of lawlessness of idol worship that people grasp for solutions by orgies and sacrificing of virgins and burning of infants in the mouths of statues to Asherah, Baal, and Moloch. But God... In his grace, our Yahweh, in his grace, he reveals his nature and his character to Israel. He has communication with them. He tells them his desire. His desire is to see his people honor him and then also honor one another as a result. And it's in this kind of obedience that God reciprocates honor back to the people. Psalm 1, 3-4, through 4, it says, the, to the one who delights in the law of the Lord, he says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf doesn't wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. So God is saying, hey, here are my Ten Commandments. Here are my laws for basic living. Here are the basic cooking and eating instructions. Here's how to treat your neighbor and the foreigner with honor. And every seven years, remove the debts owed to one another with jubilee. He gives them knowledge of how to, do, uh, 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 how to live a godly life. 
This is how Jesus himself sums up the law and the prophets. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So for Israel, God has given them a unique ethic to live by, which distinctly separates them from the surrounding nations. And at the same time, by that separation, it emphasizes, it clarifies the depths of sin and depravity apart from God. See, just as we understand that revelation, uh, salvation is revealed in Christ apart from the revelation of God, given to men by God, we can know nothing about God. We can't derive any knowledge about God, really, aside from what he has revealed to us. Psalm 1 wraps up with this in verse 5 and 6. It says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So I've now read the entire first psalm to you as a preface to the book of the Psalms, hopefully giving you a glimpse into the context of the mind of an Israelite whether it's King David or any of his fellow men or women, uh, who has spent their days meditating on the law, receiving God's blessings, trusting that God's law is his revelation to men. So a faithful Israelite will read Psalm 1, and they prepare their heart to delight in God's revelation, his revealing himself to them. And that's really what the Psalms ultimately are. I want to give you a definition to how to understand the Psalms. The Psalms are poetic meditations on the revelation of God. The Psalms are poetic meditations on the revelation of God. The Psalms reflect on everything God has done and said up until this point. God meditates on the Exodus, the crossing of the sea and the Jordan, uh, creation, uh, the Ten Commandments at Sinai, wandering and the conquest. They reflect on, on the victories and defeats of Israel, God's judgment and his favor on Israel and on David. Israel knows who their God is and because of his revelation. And so David and the other psalmists, they meditate on the revelation of God. And so they are compelled to respond. And so they write and sing the Psalms. Now, how exactly do the Psalms meditate on God's revelation? Well, there's a few key uh, ways to do this. Number one, they do it through poetry. When we think of Psalms, we probably most naturally think of the Psalms as a big worship song book out of the Bible, right? This is God's worship song for us. And rightly so, the Psalms are a wonderful praise book. If you, if you want to know how to think about, how to talk about God, read your Bible, of course, but especially the Psalms. It's rich in poetry, full of imagery and metaphor. All of it worshiping the various angles and contours of God's perfect nature. Uh, we're going to look at Psalm 18. It's a great example of this. David praises God for his protection. He says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. It's an innocent enough text. It expresses David's comfort in the Lord. And it says that when he cries, God hears him, but, but, and he comforts him, he protects him. But then you keep reading, you read on further, the imagery becomes a little bit more tangible, a little bit more terrifying. God shifts from a fortress into the subduer of all the earth for the sake of his beloved David. Verse 7, it says, Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and he came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. And out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. <clears throat> now, did this happen literally? 
No, it's poetic imagery. There's a parallel text uh, in 1 Samuel that tells us that, you know, it recounts most of the events in which David is escaping from King Saul, the context for this psalm. David writes Psalm 18 as a response to God delivering him from Saul, but none of this, as we see in 7 through 12, literally happens, but that does not mean that its point is untrue, that God is, uh, the, the psalm itself is revealing to us that God is in fact over his creation, that he defends his beloved, and that he judges heaven and earth righteously and beautifully, and he discerns the righteous from the wicked. All of this David has learned from the law, from God's revelation to him, And then further on in this same psalm, he accents the many aspects of God's righteousness through the poetic device of parallelism. He he has multiple lines that accent the same point. Verse 25 through 30, it reads, With the merciful you show yourself merciful, and with the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you show yourself pure, and with the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp, the Lord my God lightens my darkness." For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. And this is important, verse 30. says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. All of this poetry and imagery is pouring out from David by meditating on God's revelation and simply concluding this. God is good and his word is true. And he derives it from every angle of the text, from uh, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, to the earth reeled and rocked, uh, to uh, then with the merciful you show yourself merciful, and with the blameless you show yourself blameless. This is all consistent in David's mind. You know, considering the power of imagery, I kind of want to bring out one of the psalms that we sing in our first service together. Uh, One of the hymns is called The Love of God. Uh, we, sing it, we sang it a few weeks ago uh, in, a, in our first service, and, and, I, and I first uh, heard a modern rendition of it about seven or so years ago, uh, and I absolutely love it. It's got this really sweet drum beat in there. I really like it a lot, but also the lyrics are just rich, and, and they're uh, a couple centuries old, but the poetry of the song is palpable. Its third verse reads this way. Uh, it goes like this. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? And were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Basically saying, if all of creation were repurposed simply to write down the breadth and the width of God's love, even still we wouldn't have enough space in the sky or enough ink in the sea to write it all down. Poetry is powerful. It captures the imagination and grips the heart, but also when it comes from meditating on God and on his revelation to us, poetry uniquely tells us the truth. So why should you read the Psalms? Well, if you want to think and talk about God truthfully, read the Psalms. The Psalms meditate on God's revelation through poetry, but also they reflect on God's revelation through personal praise. I think it's pretty easy to argue that, like the rest of Scripture, the Psalms are generally applicable to each of us on an individual level and easily usable for corporate worship at the same time. They are God's Word, they are inspired and ultimately written by God's Spirit, and we read from the Psalms together in our corporate worship fairly often. But also, they are written, like the rest of Scripture, in unique contexts that offer new meaning to them. Psalm 18, as I previously stated, was written as a response of God's deliverance of David uh, from the hands of King Saul. So David's personal experience directly influences the writing of this psalm, and then we sing it now, centuries later. To be fair, though, many of the psalms are written without a very clear uh, idea of what the uh, event context is. 
But simply the context of the author, of who is writing, can still give us a greater understanding. Uh, here's another example in, in a song that we sing in our contemporary service, How He Loves. Probably one of the most famous worship songs of the early 2010s, and one of my favorite songs, and has been for a long time. And we play it here sometimes, and we even played it at junior high camp last week. Kids loved it. And, and the version which everyone is probably most familiar with is the David Crowder Band version. It came out in 2009. Uh, but originally, the song was written by, and recorded by an artist named John Mark McMillan, uh, in 2005. And David Crowder loved the song and he wanted to produce his own arrangement uh, of the song that would be better, uh, more applicable for corporate church worship. Uh, but in the original state, however, How He Loves isn't really written as a corporate worship song. It's actually originally written as a sorrowful lament. Macmillan's best friend, Stephen, he's passionate about the gospel and, and he wants to share the gospel with students and youth, but his life was uh, taken in a tragic car accident. And so the next day, John Mark McMillan, he, he gets out of bed after hearing the news, and in grief, he begins writing and singing how he loves as a response. He, uh, you know, when we, when we sing the song together, when we sing the song at, at most places, um, the David Crowder recording even, uh, we sing the first two verses in corporate worship. And they're both beautifully written. Uh, here are some lines from it that will be familiar. His love's like a hurricane, I am a tree. Or, if grace is an ocean, we are all sinking. Or, Heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. We all, <laughs> we love that lyric. <laughs> but in Macmillan's original arrangement, there is this third verse at the very end. In the recording, uh, in, in John's original recording, it's just him and his guitar, and he's sobbing into the microphone. And the lyrics go like this. Well, I thought about you the day Stephen died, and you met me between my breaking. And I know that I still love you, God, despite the agony. And people, they want to tell me you're cruel. But if Stephen could sing, he'd say it's not true. Because you love us, oh, how he loves us. And he just starts singing this chorus. And this is what God's revelation does. It compels us to songs of praise. Lord, even in my grief, by meditating on your revelation, move me to sing. That, that song is different to me now after hearing this verse and knowing the story of the song. It's, it's not just a song of praise. It's a song of lament. And it's about the presence and love of God in the midst of our hurt. David does similarly in, in Psalm 13. As, as Tyson read this morning, I'll read this for you again. It reads this. It says, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. He's kind of in a panicky mode. But then he turns in verse 5 and 6. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. From the heights of rejoicing in the deliverance of God to the depths of feeling as though God can't hear him, David still chooses to sing. The Psalms praise God through a vast range of emotion, from joy to fear and despair, to shame and guilt to anger. The Psalms demonstrate how complex emotional creatures like ourselves can still praise God. Throughout it all, David has meditated day and night on the revelation of God, and he still knows that he has received salvation through the hands of the Lord Almighty, and he will trust in his love. The Psalms show us that lament, as much as exaltation, is a real and essential form of our worship. 
We may feel led to doubt the power or even the existence of God when we suffer, but that's not the response of David or the entirety of the biblical authors and their suffering. In fact, the very next psalm, Psalm 14, I, like I said, I think the structure of the psalms is, ju- is just as inspired as the text itself. The next psalm, it says, reassuring the grieving reader, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Your suffering does not warrant denying God his due glory, but actually maybe giving God praise in your grief is a divinely healing process. And the Psalms show us that. Do you want to grieve healthily? Read the Psalms. I love the Psalms because in David's case especially, whose story we know through First and Second Samuel, uh, we see a man given great power and responsibility and desiring to be incredibly faithful with it. And though he fails on numerous occasions... His repentance leads to God honoring him still. Many look at anyone in such a place of authority as his in, in, in our, time, our day and time today as being inherently without redemption or only being able to use religious zeal as a tool to oppress or preserve power. But David is having real difficult conversations with God about his sin, his insufficiency, his loneliness, and his need for God's presence. David doesn't desire to abuse his power. His desire is to see God reigning through him. Psalm 25, 4-5 shows us. It says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. This is the cry of David and the psalmists. Lord, even on my throne, I don't know my right from my left, and I don't know right from wrong. But your revelation to me guides my way. So please teach me your paths. Let, that, let them sink in. Do you want to learn to be obedient to God? Read the Psalms. Do you not want to be obedient to God? I recommend you read the Psalms still. But let me warn you, you may not like what it has to say about the disobedient. But everyone is in the Psalms. The Psalms teach us to praise in our personal joys and our successes, our personal griefs and our personal sin. And thirdly, and I think most importantly, the Psalms meditate on the revelation of God through prophecy. While the Psalms operate as a unique text and genre all their own, the Psalms still do much of what the Old Testament does. They prophesy. It's probably fair to consider the Psalms as David's prophecy book. By by God's Spirit, the words of the psalmist both meditate on God's revelation to Israel in the past by reflecting on the law, but also by God's Spirit, they meditate on a revelation that has not been fully revealed yet to mankind. By, by David's very nature, as he writes the Psalms, the role he plays in the overall biblical narrative, he is inherently prophetic. Uh, he foreshadows the coming of a truer, better king, promised from his lineage. This, this one will similarly be a, a shepherd king born in the small town of Bethlehem who will enter Jerusalem to the praises of many, and he will ultimately rule with the favor of his people. When I was in college, we talked a bit in our classes about how to best understand prophecies in the Old Testament and especially the Psalms how the New Testament authors would look at the Psalms to understand the nature of Jesus because the Psalms are quoted 77 times in the New Testament when addressing Jesus. And that doesn't include many more references and allusions to the Psalms as well. And this is more than any other Old Testament book. Any other prophet in the Old Testament, David's work gets the most. Our professor said it's like looking at a mountain from its foot. When, when David is writing this text, when, when David's writing his psalms and he's worshiping, he is worshiping based on what he knows, the, the, the law, the Torah. He's writing, and, and it's like looking at the foot of a mountain. He sees right in front of him, and it's true, and it's good. But then, uh, when, da- but when we understand it through the Spirit of God, through the understanding of Jesus Christ our Lord, it's like, it's like looking at 
uh, from the peak of the mountain looking at the Rockies, right? So David is writing at the view of the foot of the mountain, and yet the Spirit through him is actually writing about the Rockies, and now in Christ we can see all of it. We can see the entire range. We can see how David prophesies the nature of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the reign of Jesus. The New Testament authors commonly gathered their understanding of Jesus as Messiah through their knowledge of the Psalms, through David's writing especially. There was already a precedent set in the Jewish mind that David was in fact a prophet as well as king. Uh, His works were inherently prophetic. They were expecting his prophecies to be fulfilled. In Acts 2, Peter is preaching the first Christian sermon at Pentecost, and he's, he's revealing to the listening Jews how David's prophecies have come to fruition in Christ, and he's not making a case, hey, actually David's a prophet. No, they already knew that. They already knew David was prophetic, but they didn't know how. And Peter's making a case. He's saying Christ is how. In defense of the resurrection, he quotes Psalm 16, saying, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. That's Peter quoting. And then, and then he says, brothers, he's talking to the Jews, he says, I may say to you with confidence that our patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So he's basically saying, verse 27, 28 here, this psalm doesn't make any sense if it's just about David. And then he says in verse 30, being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David is in his tomb. Look at Jesus' tomb. He's gone. By the inspiration of God's spirit, David reflects on God's revelation, even that which he has, uh, has not been yet revealed to men. If you understand what I'm saying, David is writing. Peter is seeing how David's writings are fulfilled. This is all over the Psalms. Psalm 2, it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is a thousand years before Jesus even comes to earth. But that is exactly how the New Testament speaks of the relationship between Jesus and the Father. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That word begotten, very key. They're referencing Psalm 2. The author of Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, he quotes this very verse in Psalm 2 uh, to emphasize Jesus as the only son, the anointed one. He says, who else has God called, uh, has been called his son who has been begotten? Other images uh, pop up in the Psalms which are then ascribed to Jesus. Uh, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And Jesus in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is using the Psalms to clarify exactly who he is, exactly his own nature. The Psalms are prophetic. And of course, perhaps most famously, we know Psalm 22. And you might be familiar with this opening line. Jesus quotes it as he hangs upon the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't know the exact context of David's originally writing this psalm, but he clearly seems under stress and anguish. But I'll tell you, I'm going to read from verse 14 through 18 of David's writing, right? A thousand years before Jesus' crucifixion. And let me know if you hear anything familiar. It says this, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my heart. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my, my tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet, and I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Have you read about before of how Jesus' enemies surrounded him at the cross, and how his blood and water poured from his side? 
about how Jesus' hands were pierced and so were his feet? Have you heard how they watched and gloated over his suspended body? About how the guards divided his garments by casting lots at the foot of the cross? These are all accounted for events in Christ's crucifixion. Do you think Jesus was expressing despair as he hung upon the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, Jesus is saying, this is exactly how my grandfather David said it would happen. So when I say the Psalms are the meditations on the revelation of God, please understand that I mean more than just the Torah. The Psalms are meditations on the whole revelation of God. And beautifully, most beautifully, most fully, in the arrival and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you want to know about Jesus? Read the Psalms. Do you want to know about salvation and atonement? Read the Psalms. I was listening to an apologist uh, the other day discussing this text, uh, this text, uh, Psalm 22, alongside the suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53, two of the most uh, obvious prophecies in the Old Testament. And he, he just made a blanket statement, and I thought it was really interesting, and I kind of chuckled when I heard it. He just said, this is why you should be a Christian. <laughs> this is why you should believe. Now, like I said, I chuckled. It seemed too simple. I, 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 love, uh, I love apologetics. I love testimonial apologetics, defenses for uh, old or young earth creation, historical evidence for the resurrection or the great flood. All perfectly worthwhile efforts. But as I heard him say it, I grinned because sometimes it's as simple as reading God's word, his revelation, and seeing that God promised a Savior through David a thousand years prior, and seeing also that God fulfilled that promise in Jesus. It's its own internal apologetic, its own defense. David gives this aliyuf, and Jesus, a thousand years later, beautifully dunks the ball. And this might make the Psalms more unique than anything, uh, any song that we could write today, where we can write and sing about what we've seen and understand. David writes about things he will not see in his lifetime. The inspiration of the Spirit of God in its writing is transparent when you understand how much of what King David writes is fully understood when it's applied to King Jesus. The Psalms are meditations not just on the law, the Torah. The Psalms are meditations on the full revelation of God, the law which is fulfilled in Christ. So perhaps Psalm 1, when we open the text, when we we open the Psalm, it reads a little bit differently now for us. Blessed is he whose delight is in the law of the Lord, on the full revelation of God. And on his full revelation, he meditates day and night. So then why should you read the Psalms? Because it's entirely relevant to every aspect of the Christian walk. In the full revelation of Christ, in the knowledge of God's gospel, the Psalms speak more vibrantly and more clearly than even its original human authors could have known. The Psalms reveal the heights of man's joys, as well as the depths of our sin and our sorrow. It illustrates the wonder of God's might and the power of his love for us, and ultimately his desire to redeem us by sending his son to die for us. Remember when I said that we are all in the Psalms somewhere? Well, Christ our Lord is in the Psalms too. The Psalms are poetic reflections on the full revelation of God, and they take on their truest meaning in Christ. In Christ and by God's Spirit, we can understand the Psalms more fully than even David and the other authors could. So if you need a sermon with application, I'll start here. Read the Psalms. As Psalm 1 tells us, Blessed is he whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Read along with us. We are on day 3 today, so tomorrow we'll be on Psalms 16 through 20. Today's 11 through 15. The Psalms up to this point aren't very long. 
you can probably catch up in no more than an hour. And as you do this, I might even recommend, if you have a reference Bible or by using some online tools, uh, see how these verses are quoted and cited in the New Testament, how the Psalms point us to Jesus and his nature. And here's another application for you. By reading, let your faith either be born or bolstered. If you read the Psalms and you find Jesus, then I beg of you, believe in him. Trust that the death of Jesus, when all of our sins are laid on his shoulders, when they went with him to the grave but did not rise with him on the third day, trust that this was sufficient for our salvation. That while Jesus was dead for merely three days, our sin is dead forever in Christ. Believe that even a millennium before Christ came, as David is residing in his palace and he's looking over the entirety of his kingdom, as he's meditating on the law of the Lord, believe that the Spirit of God is compelling him to write and to sing and to show to the generations beyond him that Jesus was always God's plan for salvation to mankind. And through faith in Christ, let the words of Psalm 16 ring truer in our hearts. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your revelation to us that we are not left wondering or wandering, Lord, but you've actually given us uh, utmost clarity. You've revealed to us truth. We can know the truth by your revelation, and the Psalms make that so very clear to us, Lord. Let us be people who delight on your word, who delight in your law, who delight in the law fulfilled in Christ. Lord, this is a world that is struggling to understand truth, struggling to understand uh, foundational reality, but Lord, you reveal it to us by your very nature, by your word. You provide to us a way to understand you. Help us to delight in that, to rejoice in that. Lord, thank you for today, for your mercies and your grace that's new with each morning. In your glorious name we pray, amen.